you, Miss Sue Ann. And good morning, everybody. Good to see everybody out this morning, and good to have everybody here. We have a few visitors here with us this morning. We're pleased to have you, and want to invite you to be back with us uh, anytime you can. And if you're looking for a church home, we'd like for you to consider Locust Grove. Uh, for that, and if you're logging into Facebook or onto YouTube, we welcome you and invite you to be with us in person at any time you have the opportunity to do so. All right, let's see here. Looks like Glenn and Donna have got the uh, children's church this morning, so 12 and under that want to go over for that uh, can head right over for children's church. Have a good time. And as they're heading over, if you want to mark number 31. Drifting too far from the shore in your hymnals. We'll use that as our hymn of invitation this morning. Good looking group. I think that one boy in the Czech church is a little too big for children's church, but that's okay. There you go. It's always a privilege for me to, to get up here and, and to stand and share in God's word with you. I just want you to know how I view that and and that uh, you continue to bless me with being able to serve this congregation. Uh, I don't get to say that enough, I'm sure, or don't take time to. I just want you to know that. Of course, I'm sure that nobody needs me to tell them that this is Labor Day weekend. Uh, and, uh, you know, I kind of come to Labor Day with mixed emotions because I'm really not sure what to do with this particular holiday. <laughs> Uh, usually Labor Day, I use it, you know, to kick off kind of the holiday season to prepare us because we're going to encounter more and more people uh, each year. Uh, but really, you think about Labor Day is a little different in how we handle it. And I can give you a, a little brief explanation. Uh, for Memorial Day, we honor those that have lost their lives in the defense of this country. And then July the 4th, of course, we honor the founding of our nation. Uh, Christmas, we honor the birth of our Savior, and Thanksgiving, we honor the blessings that God has given us, and then at New Year's, we, we, uh, we think about new beginnings and things, how we want to do things different in the coming year than we did last year, and then we have Labor Day. Labor Day, of course, we know is set up, and if you've never really looked back at the history of Labor Day, I encourage you to do that. Uh, it is set aside for the accomplishments of the American workman or work woman, however you want to view that, and the contributions that they have made to the success of our nation. But we really don't prepare ourselves in any great way, do we? I mean, uh, have uh, great preparations or, or that sort of thing. That's why we come to Labor Day, and it's kind of that end of summer, that last chance we have to maybe take that nice little vacation uh, before the fall of the year sets in. And, and uh, so here we are. One thing that we don't do for Labor Day is we all don't go in tomorrow to work and go walk up to our boss as we go in an hour early and tell him, I love this job so much I'm going to work today for free in honor of Labor Day. Now, we don't do that, do we? And probably won't get no volunteers for that either, will we? So I'm not suggesting we change that, by the way, because I'm going to enjoy the day off tomorrow as well. But here's some interesting statistics for you. If we live to retirement, and I'm using my age group uh, that retires at 67, if you started work at 19, you're going to work almost 100,000 hours of your life. And that's 48 hours, 40 hours a week for 50 weeks. Now, I took out two weeks for vacation. 
Some of you don't get two weeks. Some of you get two weeks and don't take two weeks. Uh, but that's averaging that work week like that. And that's how much time we will spend at our jobs. Now that's working an eight hour day. If you do some other type of construction work or if you farm or something, you're gonna, you wish you had an eight hour day. And I understand that. And some folks are on salary and they're expected to work nine or 10 hours a day. So eight hour a day would be a welcome relief. But that's just the average of how many hours. That's about a third of our adult life if you think that, break that down, because you get eight hours for work. We're supposed to try to get eight hours of sleep per night, right? And that gives you eight hours a day of free time, quote unquote, for us to do whatever we want to do. So that gives us a little perspective about how much work is involved in our lives. We oftentimes don't think about it that way. Uh, we oftentimes think about work and how it's something to be endured more than something to be enjoyed. And the sad fact is a lot of people really don't care about their jobs. They know it's necessary, but they look at their jobs as a burden, something to have to endure instead of something that we can enjoy. So it's not a, no wonder that Labor Day is kind of a, is an odd little holiday for us. We celebrate something that many, many people don't enjoy. We celebrate something many, many people look at just having to endure. And we never really looked at things that way, do we? When it comes to our secular work. Now, I certainly don't want us to ever have that kind of attitude about our work as Christians. And that's why this morning, the title of my sermon is, How Do We View Work? Because if you try to equate work that you earn your living with and the work of the Lord as together as the same thing, then I'm afraid you've got a little crossed wires there. Because Labor Day, and I'm going to encourage us in the future to remember that work is a blessing. And it's not something that just has to be endured. It's not a curse to have to go to work. And I want to talk about that this morning, work as a blessing. I want to talk about work as service. And I want us all to be reminded that someday in the future, someday in the future, all of us will hear some words. And we'll look at that at the end too. So first let's look at work as a blessing. And turn your Bibles with me, if you will, over to Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. And I want to set to get us where we have our pattern for work set. And that's in the God and creator of all that is, all that ever was, and all that ever shall be. It says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, that on the seventh day, God ended his work with all that he had made and rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. So we see that God is a worker. He worked for six days and rested on the seventh. We also know that God created us in whose image? In his own image. So if we are creations of God in his image and we see that God is a worker, then what does that tell us about ourselves? That we ourselves should expect to be working. If you look in verse 7, and the Lord, formed, Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
And the man became a living soul. And then if you go on over to verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So we see that right off of the bat, right after creation, a God who works, what did he do with his creation of man who was made after his own image? He gave him a job to do, right? In the Garden of Eden, to dress it and keep it. That means that he worked it. It was his job to tend the garden, to keep the Garden of Eden. Now realize that before sin had entered into the world and God had given him this job, could you imagine being, having to take care of paradise, the Garden of Eden? What a privilege that would be. What would, what would it be like to take care, to work in the Garden of Eden before sin? When all of God's creation was in perfection, all he had to do was plant, prune, pick, and eat, so to speak. And that was it. But here's what we got to realize. Because of disobedience, things changed. Genesis 3, verse 17 and 18. And unto Adam said he, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and has eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Now I want you to notice something there. What did he curse? Did he curse the work? Or did he curse the ground? He cursed the ground. He didn't curse the work. So work's not to curse, but the ground. Added in the thorns and the thistles. It would be for sorrow. So that tells me it would be, this is a punishment he's exacting on Adam and Eve for disobedience. And if it's the exact opposite of what it was like in the Garden of Eden, there was no weeds, there was no thorns, there was no thistles. They didn't have to sweat to, to, to produce food. Because of this disobedience and because of this banishment from the Garden of Eden, this was added into man's plight. And oftentimes we think about that that curse involves the fact that it was work, but work was given to Adam and Eve first in the garden to tend it. And there was no curse associated with that. Only after disobedience was there a curse. And it was not on the work, it was on the labor that was being done, the, the toiling. And that's what we see here. And we can, we can appreciate this. I can especially appreciate this because every year what happens in the spring, many of us becomes an enthusiastic gardener, don't we? An optimistic gardener. We go out and we turn the ground and we look forward. We buy up the seed. We get the fertilizer. We make sure everything's prepared. We plant and we plant and we plant and we watch it rain. And it begins to sprout and then all of a sudden you've got beans this high and weeds this high. And then your gardening enthusiasm wanes, doesn't it? Because listen, think about how nice it would be to go out and plant a garden, beans, corns, tomatoes, potatoes, and never have a weed and never have a bug in it that you had to go out and tend to it. All you had to do was go out and move the dirt around the plants a little bit, add a little fertilize, and pick it when it got ripe and ready to pick. You never had to hoe. 
You never had to put no chemicals on your garden to kill the bugs. You never had to go pick nothing off. Could you imagine? I can't imagine gardening that way. But that's, that's kind of what it was like for Adam and Eve, I imagine. There was no weeds. There was no pest to eat their, their plants up. But once sin entered in, once disobedience entered in, then comes the thorn and the thistles and the bugs and all the things that make gardening unenjoyable. Because I think we all like to go out and pick, don't we? We like to go out and get that food. We know how good it's going to taste, that, that first mess of beans or that last mess of beans, that last mess of corn or <laughs> last tomatoes on the vine. We, we think, well, this is going to be the last, so I better enjoy it. But all that work that we had to put into it because of what? The curse. That's why this happens is because of the curse of disobedience. And it was not on the work. It was on the ground. Work can be fun. Work can be enjoyable. But what makes work unenjoyable? What makes it not so much fun? It's the thorns and the thistles, right? It's the things that are unpleasurable, the things that make it difficult, part of the curse. Maybe it's that way at work. Maybe if you didn't have a difficult boss looking over your shoulder. Maybe if you didn't have a coworker who you didn't get along with. Maybe if you didn't have projects that was so hard that are, or that stretched your abilities to make it uncomfortable to where it wasn't enjoyable. Those thorns and thistles, maybe if those was removed, would work be more pleasurable? Many of you can say yes. Because many of us, wide variety of people in this room, wide variety of vocations here, if you took out all of the difficulties of your job, it would be more enjoyable to you, wouldn't it? Because you have a talent for doing whatever it is that you do. And sometimes those thorns and thistles get in the way of us being able to use our talent solely for that. We're out putting out a fire or pulling up a weed, doing something else. So we see that it continues on. Work was not the curse. It's the thorns and the thistles. It's the things that were brought up of the curse that makes it less enjoyable. When God first made man, he blessed man. We've seen that. Made a partner out of him in caring for the Garden of Eden. And the Bible teaches that we are also partners with God in work. We depend upon him. And it's more obvious than others. And we think about this, uh, kind of the strange year that we had uh, for farmers and for gardeners alike. If you don't think you don't depend upon God, and we've talked about sowing the seeds, but you have a year that has a lot of rain or a year that has a lot of, uh, lot of drought, and then you know that it's up to God to provide for the harvest. It ain't nothing that we can do. Oh, you can drag a water hose out in a sprinkler and you can water your garden. It never does as good as when it rains, does it? Ever. I mean, it, it will do better than your neighbor that doesn't water, but it never does as good as a good old soaking rain to go in there. You can do a few things to overcome a, a drought, but you can't do anything to overcome when it rains too much. So we see that we depend solely upon God for the harvest to work with us as partners to give us the increase. And it's the same way that it is in ministry. And you've heard me talk about this over the past couple of weeks. We can only sow a seed. 
Or we may be the tiller of the ground, tiller of the soil. But we know that it is God that brings the increase in his work. But would there be increase if there was not someone sowing? Would there be increase if there was not someone tilling and watering? Well, with God, all things are possible. But that shows us how that we are partners with God in work even unto this day. Much in the same way that Adam was a partner in caring, Adam and Eve caring for the Garden of Eden, we ourselves as Christians are still partners in this work that God has for us to do. And we think about this. The most fulfilling part of your life can be or should be thinking that you worked hand in hand with God to accomplish part of his will. You ever think about that? Ever think about if someone come up and asked you, what's the greatest accomplishment that you've ever had? What would your mind be the first thing that your mind would go to? And don't be too terribly hard on yourself because it would be human nature to think about something that, that I had kind of accomplished on my own, but we really know that you don't accomplish anything on your own. But it's the first thing that you would, would go to is that I led somebody to the Lord or I planted the seed that resulted in them coming to the to the salvation of Jesus Christ because that's a pretty great accomplishment, folks. And that's how our minds should be working. The greatest work that we can do is be in partnership with that of God in the planting, in the tilling, in the sowing, in the tending, and put our trust and faith in God for the harvest. And if we can say that we've been part of that, then that's a great accomplishment. And I'm not demeaning successful businesses accomplishments with academics or sports. Those are all good things, but they're not the greatest things. The greatest things that we can do is those things that we have done in partnership with the Lord. And then that work should be as well. Let's look at Luke chapter 10, verse 2. And you'll see where this is was going. Luke chapter 10, 2. And this is Jesus speaking as he sends out the 70. He says, therefore it said unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. And you think about that and you think about kind of the landscape of the world today or U.S. today, I don't know about the world, I presume it's pretty much the same, we're having a hard time getting employees in the school system. Other industries are having a hard time to get employees to come to work, okay? And what they're doing is they're offering great incentives, much higher pay than we experienced four or five years ago. And higher and higher, and they're having to bump it up higher and higher and higher, you know why? Because the incentive is not enough to come to work. So finally someone reaches that incentive that that person says, hey, I'm willing to go out and work for X dollar an hour, so many hours per week with these kind of benefits. Yes, I'm going to go to work. And people come and knock down the doors for those jobs. $20 an hour, $25 an hour. My problems are solved. But what if I stood out on the front porch or we put a sign up that said, Great laborers are needed. 
Zero pay. How many people's going to come busting down the doors of church to come? Oh, I want one of those jobs. I want one of those jobs that I'm going to have a, a great harvest to do and have the job as a laborer in that harvest, but I'm going to receive no monetary pay. Not too attractive, is it? Not when we look at it in the world's view. But what if we look at it from God's view? What if we look at it from the labor that I am putting forth toward this harvest is eternal pay? That people will see benefits and I will see benefits of having to work hand in hand with God, working as a partner with Him, bringing the lost to Him so that that harvest may be increased. And as he says, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. And that's what we need to remember. There's plenty of work out there. It just never seems to be enough work. That's why that, that's why that sign I mentioned and I put out there on the bulletin board. And I'll mention that again. And whoever put that up on Facebook, kudos to you. It says the church is not a cruise ship where a few serve the many who are relaxing. The church is like a battleship where it's all hands on deck and we're all committed to the mission. And that's how we need to view our labor in the church. As we're members of a, a battleship and we all have an important job to do. And it makes that battleship function properly when everybody is doing what they're supposed to do. So I want to encourage you that because work should be a service as well. Not only should it be pleasurable, but it should be a service. Now we think about Jesus in this. Jesus was, uh, his father was a carpenter, Joseph, we know that. He was trained up in the, in the carpentry field, and he most likely made things that helped make people's lives easier. That's what carpenters do. They build homes today. We don't really, uh, and we have people that have furniture shops that build furniture. But a carpenter at this time, if you had a plow, that had to be built, carpenter built it. If you had the yoke that had to be built so that you could team up your oxen to, to pull that plow, carpenter built it. So we don't oftentimes think about the service that Jesus was providing to the people in his community of Nazareth there as the carpenter. He was doing things that made life easier for the farmer to farm. He was building tables and chairs so that families could gather around and eat and enjoy time together. He was building important things, the things of everyday life. And that was his service through his work. He was benefiting other people in that. What about the work of the church? What about the work of the church? Do we think about that as a service? Now, this congregation I'm very proud of as we go through this little section. As I was writing this, I was thinking about uh, we do a really good job here. We do a wonderful job here at Locust Grove in this field talking about work as a service toward others. Because there's people that need to be brought to the power of the saving grace of Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen, and eternal hope for heaven through the power of this blood, that sacrifice. People need that. The world is shifting their focus off of other things with many of these new age theories and new age philosophies and things that, that kind of have a, seem to be sprinkled with a little truth, but mostly it's false idols, false gods. 
but that's what we see the world creeping into. So we have work as a service. And when we try to serve someone, try to serve others, one thing that can be the toughest thing to do is knowing when to help and when not to help. And I've often wondered in a particular situation, what's the best thing to do? What is the best thing to do? Now, if we had unlimited amounts of money and could just hand out money to people at any time, at any request, that would maybe make the decision easier. But I'll tell you one thing that I've learned since being in the ministry is that sometimes that's the worst thing you can do for somebody is just hand them out money. Because that's not solving the problem. That's just solving an issue immediately. And... Uh, one thing that we need to have a mind of is that the Bible and life, as we have seen, especially here in Kentucky, teaches us that there are reasons that people are poor and are in need. And I want to go over just a few of those and, and let you reflect on this as we think about our work, our partnership with God in service. Because we know sometimes people are poor because of calamity, don't we? We have seen that right here in the state of Kentucky with our family and friends to the west with the tornadoes last year, almost coming up a year now. And then this year over to the east of us with the terrible, devastating flooding. And the, the hundreds and hundreds, well thousands, of our fellow Kentuckians who have lost everything. Everything. They have nothing but the clothes that they had on their back. And that may not even be nothing but pajamas, folks. We don't even think about that sometimes. Well, they should have had insurance. Okay, I'll give you that. Do you think insurance would replace everything that you own if you lost it all when you went home from church? Nope. Insurance is not set up that way. But these folks lost everything, so they're poor. They're, not, they're the poorest of the poor because they got nothing. Got a piece of ground and a foundation if they owned the land. That was it. So they were poor from calamity of no fault of their own. So I think that would be a good way to partner with God and to work. And you have done a magnificent job in doing, responding to both uh, the tornadoes and the flooding. That's one of the things that says right in his thinking about that. What a great job that we have done. But you know, we think about there are people, other people that are poor because of oppression. Man's inhumanity toward man. Cruelty and abuse. Praise God, that doesn't, is not prevalent here that I'm aware of. But we witness that on the news, don't we? We've been praying about this for a year almost as well. What are you talking about, Rob? The war in Ukraine. Now, I'm not talking politics. It don't matter to me what you think about the why. You know there is people over in Ukraine and have been for months now just like me and you. They didn't want no war. All they wanted to do was do what we do every, every week. What we do every week, we go to work, we don't go to work, maybe we're retired, maybe we want to enjoy our grandkids, our kids, our families, we want to look forward to holidays that we celebrate, they didn't want no war, but you know what, you look on the TV, of course it's, you don't see it as much now, but because of oppression, those people are poor. You take a bomb that's dropped on top of a village and it blows everything up in the village and decimates that, you got nothing folks. And it wasn't any fault of their own. So through oppression, there's poor. Through calamity, there's poor. And also another thing that happens, and we oftentimes don't look at it this way, 
Those in the service of the Lord sometimes can be in need and be what we consider poor. Those in the mission field, those doctors and nurses and dentists that say, I'm going to go anywhere that God leads me to go and do whatever God wants me to do. And they go off to some foreign country and they go out there and yes, they're earning enough living to eat and they have what they need for daily life and to serve others in the name of Jesus. Missionaries are out in these foreign countries in the same way. They're not living in $100,000 homes, driving brand new cars, sending their kids off to the best colleges because of all the money they make. No. But they are out doing, they're out partnering with God in the mission field doing what God has called them to do. So we've identified three groups of people that we can find it easy as a church to, to be part of that service and support them, right? Calamity, those that are, have been hit by calamity, those that are under oppression, and those that are serving the Lord. And then there's a fourth group. There's a fourth group that are poor, according to what we see in the Bible, what we see in life, and those that are, that are unwilling to work. I'm not talking about somebody that has a disability that doesn't allow them to work because of that disability. I'm talking about those people that don't have that and just don't want to go get a job. They would rather live on the handouts of other people. And I'm not saying things to make anybody uncomfortable or hurt anybody's feelings, but this is what the Bible says. And that's what I'm going to talk about here. I'm not talking about Rob's personal feelings. I'm talking about what the Bible talks about here is the people that don't want to work. Laziness. Uh, look over Proverbs 26, 13. This one particular, and you can go through even in chapter 26 and find a lot of stuff. But it says that the slothful man saith there is a lion in the way. A lion is in the streets. Could you imagine calling in to work on Tuesday morning and telling them you can't come because there's a lion out in the road? Huh? <laughs> A lion? Yeah, there's a lion in the streets. Can't make it into work today, boss. Also goes on and talks about that a, a slothful man's like a, a door on its hinge in his bed. So it means he rolls over this way and he rolls back the other way. And if you read throughout the book of Proverbs, you'll see that there's a lot of things that talks about the lazy man and how they're not to be desired to be, be called that slothful person. And that's what we have to realize, that we're called to work in some form or fashion. Not to avoid work, not to allow others to provide for us. And sometimes we know that people come and ask for handouts. But if you mention to them, well, I've got some work that needs to be done. I'd be glad to pay you to work and to help me out. Well, I really don't have time to do the work. I just need the money. So we see their motivation is less of a desire to work and to earn and be productive as it is to, my job is to ask for something. But the Bible also covers that. If you look with me over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, and this is Paul teaching here, and he says, for even when we were with you, this we commanded you. Now he's talking about they were there before. And he gave them this face to face. Look at what the back end of that verse says. If any would not work, neither should he eat. So that's called 
to me calling people that we have to work if we have the ability. Now, that's not, again, I'm not saying if you don't have the physical ability to do your job or if there's some kind of mental thing that, that prevents you from doing your job, then you fall into the other categories where we would provide service for you. But if you're just too lazy to get out and get a job, you're slothful. And in the economy that we have today, people are begging for workers all over in every industry, begging for workers. There's no reason that someone should not be employed because there's plenty of opportunity for that. So as a Christian, we have a ministry to those who are poor because of that calamity or oppression or service to God, but not to those that are unwilling to work. And then that last part that I wanted to mention about the one of these days. Turn with me over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 and also the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25. We're going to look at these two, two phrases here. And I want us to understand something, folks, that everybody in this room, everybody on Facebook, <clears throat> and everybody on YouTube we're all of us going to hear one of these two phrases someday. Matthew 7, 23. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Matthew chapter 25, verse 21. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee a ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. That's as plain and simple as I can make it. We're going to hear, we're going to hear one of those two statements. And I, I work and I dedicate myself to, to my work serving the Lord to hear the second one rather than the first. But the sad thing is there's going to, people, there's going to be people expecting to hear what he said in Matthew uh, about entering into the joy of the Lord and they're going to actually hear depart from me. And that's what we have to be reminded of. We have to be reminded of that because we have to live a life that's pleasing to God as a servant to God. And I'll give you a little short story here. J.C. Penney, most of us have shopped there because it's one of the bigger stores, that, nicer stores that we have in this area to shop. You know that J.C. Penney himself, he died in 1971 at the age of 95. He left an empire at that time of about 1,660 stores. It has gotten smaller since then. And he built the, that empire of stores without compromising his principles that he had received. Did you know that J.C. Penney's father, grandfather, and great-father were Baptist ministers? And he, had a, and he had a relationship with the Lord. And he carried that relationship over to his business. He didn't drink, he didn't smoke, and he would not allow his top executives to partake in that either when he went through a selection process. Because he said he adhered to the golden rule Number one, serving God and serving his family. And he was successful, I think you would agree. He was successful in building that and, and it being uh, continuing to strive to be a good store for people. And he said once that he would rather be known as a Christian than a merchant. Amen. Now, think about that. Think about that as we go into Labor Day tomorrow and, and in back to our jobs the coming week. What is it that you want to be known for first and foremost, regardless of the level of success as the world would give it to you? You want to be known, I hope, first and foremost as a Christian. 
That's what I want to be remembered as. A Christian. A faithful servant is what I want to be remembered as. I hope you're the same. Because I agree with J.C. Penney. I'd rather be known as a Christian than, than whatever I do. I'm a supervisor now. And that's the most important thing. Colossians, and Paul, Paul will back me up on this. Paul, or Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, back to the verses uh, 23 and 24. And this is us as laborers. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that the Lord, that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. So whatever you do, when you go back to work on Tuesday morning, if you go back to work, go do it as you're doing it to the Lord. Not unto your boss. Because sometimes bosses can be difficult. But Jesus is never difficult, is he? Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for us. So you go to work for the Lord. You go to, learn, to work with the same kind of philosophy that J.C. Penney had that says, I'd rather be known as a Christian than a merchant. So you go to work and you go be the best Christian. And you know what that's going to mean? You're going to be a good or a great whatever you do. If your main focus is to be a good Christian person, a good Christian servant, whatever vocation you are in, you're going to be great at it. You're going to be a valued employee. You're going to be a valued laborer to the field uh, that you work in. Plus, you're going to serve God who created all things. And you're going to make that happen as well. So on Labor Day, that's what I want to encourage us to do. On this Labor Day Eve, it should be. Serve the Lord wherever he's placed you. What you sometimes don't realize is, and this is true for all of us, you are where you are for a reason. I firmly believe that. Whatever job that you're in, whether you're retired or whether you work or whether you're in school, whether you're in the military, whatever your vocation is, whatever you're doing, you're there for a reason if you're a Christian. God has a mission for you to be there for a reason. So go out and work for him. Be a good employee. Enjoy the day off tomorrow because it all starts back on Tuesday. And we've got one extra day's worth of work we've got to catch up for, right? And we all know and understand that. But let's go out there and do it as best as we are equipped. And I want to encourage you this morning, because God provided a way for us to escape that depart from me, you worker of iniquity. You know how, you know how we escape that? Through Jesus. By hearing the word and believing it. Confessing Jesus as our Savior, repenting of our sins, being buried with him in baptism, raised that new creation, having received the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit to be a guide to help us to be the best partner in labor, in work with God as we can be. And how long do we do that? Because I've never seen anything about somebody retiring in there, a Christian retiring. We don't never retire. We serve until we're either called away in death or until we hear the trumpet sound. And when the trumpet sounds, Christ will come. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then those that remain will be called up in the air to meet him. 
That's what the Bible says. That's when retirement starts for a Christian. Is it death or the trumpet? Now maybe you are a Christian already. And you realize, you know what? As far as employees go, as far as partners go, I've not been a very good one, but I'm going to fix that. Starting today, I'm going to go back to, do, to doing my work cheerfully for the Lord, realizing that I'm a partner in work with the Lord. I'm going to get out there and I'm going to start planting a seed or hoeing the ground or pulling a thorn or a thistle. I'm going to go to work tomorrow, and I'm not going to grumble and complain about my conditions. I'm not going to grumble and complain about my pay. I'm going to look at it as a blessing from the Lord, and I'm going to go work for the Lord and do the best job that I can do. And that's where we as Christians should be. We're going to sing this hymn of invitation. Number 31, Drifting Too Far From The Shore. The first and the third verse. If you have a decision to make, I want to encourage you to come as we stand and sing. Mm -hmm.